take out your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 10. Luke, chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be looking at a um, very common story uh, for many of you, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, we're going to be going through Luke chapter 10, verses 25 uh, to 37. Um, pray that it would be an encouragement uh, to you as it be- has been for me this week in study. Uh, so Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we bow now uh, before your holy presence. We thank you for the gift um, that we have access through Christ, through his shed blood, that you hear our prayers. So God, we first just say that you are holy, holy, holy. God, there is no one like you, God. You are mighty, you are merciful, you are compassionate. God, you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So God, the simple fact that we can approach you, that you can hear our prayers, that we can say, Father, is such a gift. But God, we we know that we um, don't always live up to being called your children. God, even this past week, we have fallen short of loving you with all our mind soul, and strength. So God, we come now for forgiveness. God, we pray that you would forgive our sins of this past week. Forgive our selfishness. Forgive our arrogance. Forgive our impatience, God. Forgive our compassionless hearts. God, we pray that you would forgive us through Christ. God, we also just pray that the name of Christ, would continue to bear fruit in this city. God, we pray now this morning for Jay Hardwick at North Rock Hill. God, we pray you bless him as he preaches the word this morning. God, we pray as he opens the book of Galatians that your people would be blessed there. God, we pray that you continue to show them favor as they grow and proclaim the the kingdom of God. God, we also pray for our nation. God, we pray that 
you would fix the problems in our nation, God. God, we, we pray that you would take care of our government, God, that you would give our leaders wisdom, um, God, and, and, and mind to, to end this shutdown. But God, even more than that, we pray that our, our country would humble themselves and would turn to you. God, that this would just be used by you to expose us of our sin and our need for you. Dear God, we ask now for our own hearts. And God, we, we, we do come this morning, Father, to hear a word from God. So God, we, we come to a passage that is familiar to many, but God, we don't want to just read it and, and, and learn things we've already learned. God, we pray that you would give us a new insight and that you would press the truths of your word deeper and deeper into our hearts. So God, I pray that as I preach that I may decrease and that you may increase, that the name of God, that the glory of God is magnified uh, in this hour. So God, I pray that you would just fix our hearts and our minds to hear and to um, heed your holy inerrant word. We ask this through the name of our great and mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As many of you know, our, our federal government has officially been shut down for 12 days. Now, regardless of what side of the political aisle you may fall, it is pretty clear that our country is extremely frustrated with the lack of cooperation and the lack of effectiveness of our government. We have fought in recent years to further democracy around the world. And now, we are showing the world a dysfunctional democracy. Or are we? I believe that the government shutdown is showing not the fruit of a dysfunctional democracy, but rather the fruit of a dysfunctional society. Politicians will always bend to the will of the people. And what we see in Washington is the fruit of the country that has turned its back on God. If we want to change Washington, we must change the hearts of the people of this nation. Noah Webster, who has been called the father of American scholarship and education, was an avid political writer and became one of the prominent spokesmen for American democracy in the early years of our nation. Listen to how important he believed the Christian faith was to the success of the American democracy. He says this, the Christian religion in its purity is the basis or rather the source of all genuine freedom in government. And I am persuaded that no civil government of a Republican form can exist and be durable in which the principles of that Christian religion have not a controlling influence. He says, in essence, that an American Republic government will not last without the principles of the Christian faith. I would concur with Webster on the importance of the principles of the Christian faith for the longevity of this American Republic. America, indeed, has turned its back on the Lord. The nation has changed a lot over the last few decades, hasn't it? A nation that was once founded on Christian principles has now turned to a nation that ridicules Christian principles. Our nation, indeed, hasn't turned away from God. And when our nation started to turn away from God, what became of the church? The church became silent. They removed themselves from the public square to preserve their own heritage. Well, in recent years, there has been a resurgence 
and Christians entering the public square, even in the face of persecution. And Christians should enter the public square, and they should fight for public office. The church is often derided and characterized as only speaking against things. People say the church should speak what they are for rather than what they are against. But in speaking for something, in many cases, speaking against something else. Christians should speak to the issues of the day because we believe that the Christian faith is not only right and true, but, hear me, will maximize the human flourishing of our society. This is what Noah Noah Webster was saying. A civil government will flourish with Christian principles at its root. But if you remove the Christian principles, you damage society. So how can we Christians help change this dysfunctional society? How can we change this nation? Today I'm going to give you three things I think we can do to help change this nation. Three simple yet profound truths that I think if we can get a hold of, we'll have a dramatic impact, not only in our city, but eventually our nation. So let's look at these truths together from this morning's text. The first I'm going to take together, uh, number one and number two, and then we'll do number two and number three together, just the way the text works, I think. So uh, the first two profound truths is love God and love others. Love God and love others. Go back in verse 25 and see what the text says. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He said, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now the lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. His motivation was not to truly listen to Jesus, but to challenge him. And he asked a great question, doesn't he? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, The Mayan calendar has caused many people to believe in recent years that the world was going to end. Uh, Most recently, December 21st, 2012, Uh, The Mayan calendar was reaching its 5,126-year-long cycle, and many believed the world was going to end. Now, most people uh, kind of mocked or even ridiculed people who thought the world was going to end, but it it did propose a question. What if the world did end? What's, What's beyond this life? What will happen when I die? Or what... Do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Have you ever asked that question of yourself? What must I do to receive, inherit eternal life? Well, typically what Jesus does, he's trying to expose the the lawyer's heart. So he doesn't answer the question with the answer. He answers it with a question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? See, Jesus knows the heart of this lawyer. His intent was to test him. But so often, what we find here, Jesus turns the tables, and he puts the lawyer on a test. We do the same, many, the same thing is true today. Many people test the claims of Jesus. But when we test Jesus, often Jesus turns around and tests the hearts of men and women. 
So the lawyer answers the question from the law, quoting one of the most well-known passages in all the scriptures if you were a Jew. It's found in Deuteronomy. So just with me, we saw uh, Jimmy read it, but just turn back to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. And let's just look at this one more time. I think this is instructive. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It says, Hear, O Israel. This is called the Shema in Jewish thought. This is probably one of the most important things in all of Jewish life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he says the same thing we saw in Luke. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, we have to understand the context here. The Jews were about to enter the promised land. They were about to establish and start a nation. So God gives them this command to build their nation upon, the love of God. Go back to the, verse, the beginning of this chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. He says this, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules of the Lord your God commanded me, Moses, to teach you that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it. Now we understand God is forming a nation, a, a people of his own possession. And this is what he tells them to do. Verse 2, you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all the statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing of milk and honey." So notice this. I just mentioned this to a group of men this past weekend. It says, notice this is God's way to establish a nation, to fear him and to love him, very simply. And whose responsibility is to, is to teach this fear of God and this love of God? Fathers, dads. The strength of a country is never in the government, but always in the family. And more particularly, the strength of fathers. A nation will be strong when the fathers are strong and godly. A church will be strong if the fathers, the men, are strong and godly. This is why you see in verse 7 of of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. Fathers must pass on this truth to the next generation. So we think back and look at the context of of Luke chapter 10. One of the things I'm saying, if you want to change our nation, men, fathers, teach your families to love God and to fear him. Now, Jesus said the lawyer answers well in in Luke chapter 10. He'd probably been taught this shame by his own father. And he knew the principles of the law. But yet we know the purpose of the law is, is to expose our sinfulness. Listen to Romans chapter 3.20. It says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In Romans 7.7, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law came to expose sin. Now, stay with me, okay? This is going somewhere. Uh, You see how this lawyer is the one being trying to put Jesus to the test. 
The lawyer says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he answers his own question. How do you inherit eternal life, church? You love the Lord, your God, with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, do this and you will live. So one can inherit eternal life if one loves the Lord with all that they have and if they love their neighbor as themselves. Have you done that? Have you loved the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your might? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? No. (laughs) You haven't. And your lack of fulfilling this commandment removes you or disqualifies you from the inheritance. You cannot inherit eternal life because you cannot love the Lord like that. Your sin and not loving God with all that you have have separated you from God. And if we do not have eternal life, we have eternal death. Has any human being ever done this? Has any human being ever perfectly loved God? Yes. Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ. God knew that we were disqualified from our inheritance because of our sin. There was nothing we could do to inherit eternal life. So God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to inherit eternal life for us. Jesus is the only one who lived with a perfect love for the Father. He loved Him with all His heart, with all His mind, with all His soul, with all His strength. Jesus inherited eternal life. So when He died on the cross and He rose from the dead, anyone who believes in that gets Jesus' life. Listen to what 1 Peter verses 1, 3 and following say. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We have an inheritance given to us by God. This is what Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. He says this, He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what it is, the hope to which you have been called. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance of the saints? How different would your life be when you knew that it did not depend on your ability to inherit eternal life? but that your inheritance has already been set aside for you in Christ. Uh, Fred Craddock, a a professor at seminary, was teaching at Yale University. Uh, Back one summer, he was talking about when he went to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It's a great place. recommend you take a vacation there because that's what he did. Took a short vacation to Gatlinburg, and one night they wanted to try to find a quiet little restaurant to eat. Um, Just the two of them, him and his wife, so as they were waiting for the meal, they, they noticed a distinguished-looking, white-haired man moving from table to table, visiting the guest. Craddock whispered to his wife, 
I hope he doesn't come over here. <laughs> you ever had that feeling when you're at a restaurant and you're just, you want to have a quiet evening and someone comes to talk to you and you don't want them to talk to you? Well, that's happened to Dr. Craddock. Uh, but the man came on over to the table. So where are you folks from? He said, friendly. Oklahoma. Splendid state, I hear. Although I've never been there, what do you do for a living? I teach preaching at a graduate seminary of Phillips University. Oh, so you teach preachers, do you? Well, I've got a story I want to tell you. And at this time, Craddock is thinking, oh no, another preacher story. Uh, I pray that you guys don't have a whole lot of preacher stories. (laughs) But everyone's got one, okay? So he groaned inwardly. He said, oh no, here it comes. The man stuck out his hand. He says, hi, I'm, I'm Ben Hooper. I was not born far from here across the mountains. My mother wasn't married, and when I was born, uh, I had a hard time. I started to school with my classmates, had a name for me. It wasn't a very nice name. I used to go off by myself at recess and during lunchtime because the taunts of my playmates cut me so deeply. What was worse than going downtown on Saturday afternoon and feeling every eye burning a hole through you, they were all wondering just who my real father was. Well, when I was about 12 years of age, a new preacher came to our church. I would always go in late and slip out early, but one day the preacher said the benediction so fast I got caught and had to walk out with the crowd. I could feel every eye in the church on me. Just about the time I got to the door, I felt a big hand on my shoulder. I looked up and the preacher was looking right at me. Who are you, son? Whose boy are you? I felt the old weight come on me. It was like a big black cloud. Even the preacher was putting me down. But as he looked down at me, studying my face, he began to smile. A big smile of recognition. Wait a minute. I know who you are. I see the family resemblance. You are a son of God. And with that, he slapped me across the rump and said, boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. The old man looked across the table at Fred Craddock and said, that was the most important single sentence ever said to me. With that, he smiled, he left, and moved on to greet some old friends. Suddenly, right when the man left, Fred Craddock remembered uh, that there was two governors of Tennessee that were um, illegitimate children. One of them was Ben Hooper, a man with a great inheritance. Imagine if you believed that Jesus Christ has already given you this inheritance. How different would your life be? We have received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God to give us a guarantee that we have this inheritance. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The second thing we want to see here, second and third, uh, we want to love others and love mercy. So love God and love others, and now we want to look at loving others and loving mercy. The lawyer had the right answer, but he still didn't get it. You know those people? They could tell you the right thing, but they still don't get it. He's saying, right, one will have to inherit eternal life for all who believe, but he still doesn't get it. So verse 29 He says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
It's, a cur- it's curious why he would ask this question. You know, one thing jumps out at me when you, when you look at it. He wants to justify or prove himself, and he kind of, he, he, he skips the first command. You know, I mean, Jesus gave two of the great commandments, right? Love the Lord, and then love your neighbor as yourself. But he doesn't even bring up the Lord. It's almost like he assumes that, hey, I got that one down. Let's go on to this neighbor thing. Or, you know, he could have felt even, even guilty for not fulfilling the second commandment as loving his neighbors as himself. I think we could see both of this in our own lives, don't you? you I think we are blind uh, to our lack of love for God and our lack of love for our neighbor. So Jesus has a wonderful way of speaking directly to our hearts, doesn't he? Listen to what he says to this lawyer back in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. Which one of these he ends with? Treated his neighbor with respect. Now, if you read it, you've heard it many times before. It's a pretty straightforward story. A man was on a trip. He fell among robbers. He was attacked, beaten, and left for dead. This man was in need. And Jesus shows how three different men handle this man. The first, a priest, saw him and passed by on the other side of the road. The spiritual man, the priest. The next, a Levite, a Jew. He saw him and passed by to the other side of the road. They saw a man in need, and instead of helping, they avoided him. Why? Why didn't they help? Let me just give you a few reasons. It's not in the text. These are just some some things I I think that I see in my own life uh, of why we don't help in need. Probably, they just didn't want to help. (laughs) Sometimes it's just that simple. We see someone in need, but our hearts are unaffected. The second thing, they probably had more important things to do. Maybe they were on their way to an event or a meeting. They just couldn't change their schedule. Thirdly, maybe they felt he got what he deserved. They They could see him being beaten. Maybe they thought that was retribution for his own sins. Or four, they thought someone else was going to help. They just assumed that, you know, this is a busy road, that somebody else is going to help the man in need. Or lastly, they were afraid it would have cost them. They had money but it was probably earmarked for something else. Or they didn't want to spend time on some man lying half dead in the street. Let me ask you a question. When you see people in need, do you ever say similar things to yourself? If you were to pass by that man, what would you have done? I'm not sure if you've seen that show, What Would You Do on TV? I always try to watch that show. What would I do if I was there? And I really want to be honest with myself because I think sometimes we're like, oh, cool. right, I would, of course, step in and say something there. But I look at my own life, and that's not always the case. So let's take a, take a look at our own hearts this morning. But Jesus shows us someone who did do the right thing. In verse 33, he says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, 
And when he saw him, same thing, they all saw him, he had compassion. I think it's important that Jesus references a Samaritan. Now, we're in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke often tries to show how the outsiders are really often doing the things well. Samaritans were half Jewish and half Gentiles. They were outside of the people of God, and yet it was the Samaritan who showed compassion and mercy, and not the people of God. Beloved, can I just tell you this? There are many people in our world who believe that it's not the Christians, it's not the people of God today who show mercy and compassion, but it's those who don't know God. Let it not be so, beloved. In verse 36, it says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. What I find interesting here is that Jesus doesn't answer his question directly, does he? The guy said, Who's my neighbor? And Jesus didn't give him an answer. He, he gave him a, a, a picture of a man who was in need and said, go and be merciful. So by not answering it, Jesus really does answer it. Who is our neighbor? Everyone. This gives value to every single human being that has ever lived. We must be a people of mercy to everyone. Christians should always be about mercy and compassion. We can look back at this whole section and really see it's all about mercy, isn't it? God has shown mercy to us by sending his son to fulfill the law that whoever believes, whoever believes in him should not perish but inherit, receive eternal life. We don't deserve God. But in his mercy, he had mercy compassion to save us. Therefore, as we receive mercy, we must go and do likewise. Listen to me. A life of mercy and compassion to those in need should be the norm for the Christian. That's not the super Christian. That's not the pastor. That is the norm for a Christian. So, How can we show mercy? Let me give you five ways and then I'll close. Five ways we can show mercy. First, be willing to help. See, the Samaritan saw a man in need and his heart was stirred with compassion. Before mercy ever shows itself externally, it always starts in the heart. This is why God cares more about your heart than anything. That's where it starts. It's your love for God. It is your love for others. The second thing, we need to realize the importance of mercy. You know, the Samaritan was on a journey. He, like the others, probably had things he had to do. He had a schedule to keep. But you know what he realized? Mercy was more important than his schedule. Beloved, Mercy is more important than your schedule. Be willing sometimes to to drop your schedule to help someone in need. Thirdly, treat others better than they deserve. Treat others better than they deserved. Let us never forget we are all sinners and deserve God's wrath. But God 
did not give us what we deserve, did he? Instead of giving us death, he gave us life through his son. Do not treat people the way they, their sins deserve. Treat them as God has treated you with mercy. Love mercy. Fourth, assume the need is your responsibility. Assume the need is your responsibility. When God gives you eyes to see someone in need, Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. So if God has, has spoken to us by His Spirit, give us eyes to see, let us look at it as a privilege to meet that need. Isn't it, isn't it a privilege to meet the needs that the Holy Spirit lays on our heart? Open your eyes to the needs around you. And fifth and finally, be willing to lose to gain. Be willing to lose to gain. Showing mercy will cost you. When you lay your life down for others, it will cost you. What did it cost the Samaritan? It cost him two days' wages. It cost him a full day of of taking care of this man and more money after he um, took him to the inn. The two most precious things in our society are what? Time and money. Be willing to lose that to find mercy. Be willing to lose your time and your money if your heart would love mercy. A society that loves, that lives on Christian principles is a society that is governed by mercy. If we want to change this nation, we must be a people of mercy. And the only way mercy will reign in this great country is if people turn to the one who shows mercy, Jesus Christ. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we herald the gospel of our Lord Christ. It's because that is the only hope for this country. How do you fix our dysfunctional society? Three simple things. Love God, love others, love mercy. Let's pray. Father, God, we pray uh, as a people, God, that we would help turn this nation around as we love you, um, as we love others, and as we love mercy. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.